0: Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's home to the land that I show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Aram. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Aram. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place called Shechem, to the oak of Moreh, Moreh. and at that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country, unto the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards Negeb. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, "'I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance.' And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he he dealt well with Abram. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is it you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that, all that he had.
1: The nights ago I picked a fight with the second verse in the hymn, trust and obey. The second verse says, not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, but his smile quickly drives it away. Not a doubt or a fear, not a sigh or a tear can abide while we trust and obey. And I asked the question, what world was John Samus, the hymn writer, living in when he wrote those words? But then one of you reminded me the week after that that the praise hymn book have changed the words of, of that verse so that it goes like this. When the shadows arise, or when the clouds fill the skies, he can turn all our darkness today. In the midst of our tears, in our doubts and our fears, we are kept... As we trust and obey. And I think that is a great and a wonderful improvement on the original words. But both versions are right to identify trust and obedience as the two keys to the Christian life. Trust and obedience are like the two sides of a double edged sword that slashes its way to victory. Uh, Trust and obedience are like the two sides of a coin that belong to the currency of heaven. Uh, The change of doubt and the banknotes of despair are not legal forms of tender in the kingdom of God. Only the coins with trust on the one side and obedience on the other side can be used in the kingdom of God. They're the only things that are of any value in the kingdom of Christ. So friends, if if your faith and obedience are perfect tonight, then you don't need the passage that Carol just read for us and the message that I'm about to preach for us tonight. But if you're a human being, then you do. And you do need Genesis 12 verses 10 To 20, we're going to see the disasters of doubt and the glories of God's faithfulness to us and to his people. So that when the shadows do arise and when the clouds do fill the skies, we'll trust and obey because we'll remember the lesson. Of this passage. If I had to put it all in a sentence, it would be this God is a promise keeping God. God is a promise keeping God. Life can be difficult, wrote Amy Carmichael, missionary to India. Sometimes the enemy comes in like a flood. But then is the time to prove our faith and live our songs. Well, may God. Bring this message and this passage home to each one of us tonight. The point, again, is God is a promise-keeping God. And we are going to see, first, Abram's doubt, and second, God's deliverance. Number one, Abram's doubt. Look again at verse 10 with me. It says, Now there was a famine in the land, and that is the land of Canaan. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land, When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now, you remember at the beginning of Genesis chapter 12, God had made great and precious promises to Abram. Carol just read them, but uh, just go back. He was still living in Ur of the Chaldeans. And God said to him from his native Homeland," He said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Verse 2, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And after he made the 800 mile journey... From the east to the west, crossing Mesopotamia, down the east end of the Mediterranean, down into Damascus, and then finally into Canaan. God said to him, in the promised land of Canaan, to your offspring, I will give this land. But now in verse 10, there's a famine in the very land that God had promised to Abram. And so if you can imagine this with me tonight, there was a great chasm. There was a huge disconnect between what Abram had heard and what Abram's eyes could see. You see that? Into his ears came the promise of a bright future. But into his eyes came the landscape of disaster. There was this great gulf. This enormous chasm between what had been promised to Abram and what Abram could see before him. And I don't believe Abram was sinning by going down to Egypt, but what is clear is that in view of the disconnect between what his ears had heard and his eyes could see, Abram's faith had taken a knock. We might even say Abram's faith had been beaten up. Why do I say that? Because of how he behaved when he arrived in Egypt. He gets to Egypt and all of a sudden he's no longer trusting God's promise. He's no longer trusting the promise that had caused him to make an 800 mile journey even though he didn't know where he was going. I will make of you a great nation, Abram. And to your offspring I will give this land. That hadn't happened yet. And yet in view of the disconnect between what his ears heard and what his eyes could see. He's thinking to himself, maybe God won't make a great nation after me, uh, of me after all. And maybe I need to take matters into my own hands. At the first touch of hunger and fear, someone wrote, the vision was lost. And the whole enterprise hazarded. It would need plagues to restore Sarai to her destiny. And deportation to get Abram back to Canaan. And the result of his doubt was sin. Say you are my sister, Sarai. And that was a half-truth. Sarai was Abram's half Sister, But because it was a half-truth used to cover the truth, it was in effect and in reality a lie. So here we have this man of God, said one, being a man still, appears in a new light. Or rather, he says, in the old light. The light of his old nature. He'd heard, I will, from God. But here he is saying, they will, in view of man, as someone else put it. Friends, the lessons for us here are manifold. Think about this. God has promised the earth to the Lord Jesus Christ. Abram's descendant. And one day, God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Christ will be honored and loved throughout the world. The nations will bow before him. The tribes will exalt him. Tongues will extol him. And the peoples will will praise him. That is the promise that has been spoken into our ears. But the landscape of disaster is what presently fills our eyes. We hear God's promise in our ears, but then we open our eyes and we see blasphemy written across every city of the world. We see a a world that considers the slaughter of unborn children a mark of societal sophistication. We see a, a culture that wants to deface the image of God by erasing male and female. We see pastors who are ashamed of their Bibles and who blush at the mention of inerrancy and cringe at the very gospel of Jesus Christ. The gap between what is promised and what we presently see is vast but here is the question for us tonight what will we fill the gap with what will we fill the gap with Abram filled the gap with doubt and ultimately sin friends we must fill the gap between what our ears have heard and what our eyes presently see with trust and obedience trust and and obedience, counting it all joy. When we meet trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, letting steadfastness have its full effect, that we might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We might look stupid as we seek to obey the great commission of making disciples of all nations in view of what the world is currently like praying for the lost, inviting people to church, running Christianity Explored courses, the gap seems too wide for that to make any sense. But friends, let's refuse to fill the gap with doubt and sin and instead fill it with trust and obedience. Trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Let me give you another example. God has promised that when Abram's descendant returns and and the world is given to him as his inheritance and as our inheritance as well, there'll be no pain for our bodies anymore. There'll be no creak of our neck as we get out of the shower or as we sleep in a weird position. I'm 33 now, I feel like I'm 83 Our perishable bodies break down. And they're in pain. And they don't work like they should. They don't function as they were originally intended to function. And and some of you are are awaiting operations. And some of you are in chronic pain. and, And the pain wears your faith down. And you're tempted to fill the gap. With doubt And even sin. But friends there is a better option. And it is trust and obedience. A few weeks ago we were looking weren't we Sunday night at Psalm 40. There was another gap for us. God had promised David a throne. And yet there he was in the pits. Hiding, fearing, For his life, what did David say? I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. He set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man. Who makes the Lord his trust. Who does not turn to the proud. To those who go astray. After a lie. Friend. Mind the gap. Mind the gap. Between what has been spoken. Into our ears. And what our eyes. Can presently see. There may be a chasm. And perhaps. We can't even see the other side because the world is in the state that it is presently in but friends the choice is ours what will we fill the gap with doubt and sin trust and obedience they're the only two options warren Wearsby said In times of testing, the important question is not how can I get out of this, but what can I get out of this? And he said, a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. God knows what kind of faith we have, he said, but we don't know. And the only way to advance in the school of faith is to take examinations. Mind the gap, pass the test. God is a promise-keeping God. Number one, Abram's doubt. But second, God's deliverance. Look, look with me back at verse 14. It, said, it says, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had... An what that means is, and he gave to Abram sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her from my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Friends, God will do whatever he has to do to fulfill his promises. God had promised Abram that he would make of Abram a great nation. And instead of trusting and obeying, he doubted and sinned. The result was his wife being taken. And yet God made a way when there was no way because God had promised, I will make of you a great nation. Friends, God will override sin. He will turn plagues into servants and diseases into butlers He will ensure that the king over here and the pharaoh over there does his bidding. Uh, Do any of you have a hard time imagining the pharaoh on the throne when Moses was around? Do you think he would have had a hard time sleeping with another man's wife? I don't think he would have. And yet this pharaoh did. This pharaoh had a problem with that. God will do whatever he has to do. God will allow whatever he has to allow. God will stop whatever he has to stop. God will use whatever he has to use to fulfill his promises in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will be impossible for God. Not the foolish actions of his people, not the sins of his children, nor the rulers of the world can thwart, stop, or hinder God's purposes from coming to pass. Amen? God promised Abram that from him all the nations would be blessed through his offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ. And think about the interventions that God had to pull off to ensure that that had to happen. God had to ensure that a virgin conceived and it happened. God had to ensure that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem even though Mary and Joseph were in Nazareth. And so it just so happened that a census was called to get them to Bethlehem at just the right time for the Messiah's birth. God had promised that the the Messiah would have his hands and his feet run through. And yet, when God made that promise, crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet. And yet, by the time Jesus had been born, the Persians had invented it and the Romans had perfected it. Why? Because God is a promise-keeping God. Maybe you're here tonight and you're in a situation not unlike Sarai. What I mean is the very ones called to protect you have been the very ones who have failed you. There's all this debate in the commentaries about whether uh, Sarai and the Pharaoh would have actually have committed adultery. Some of them said, well, it would have been inevitable. Others of them said, well, there's no way because to be taken into a harem would have meant enduring a period of time of uh, beautifying or beautification we can't know the point is this the great evil of Genesis chapter 12 lay at Abram's door but God's promises to Sarai would come to pass they were still yes and amen to her in Jesus she would conceive and bear a son and the same is true for us. Now that Jesus Christ has come, those over us may fail us in our families. Those in government over us may let us down. Those in authority from the left and from the right may well fail us. And yet God has never failed us because God is a promise-keeping God. But Maybe you're here tonight and you're a bit like Abram, you haven't done what God has called you to do. You haven't loved your wife like Christ has loved the church. You haven't prayed without ceasing. And you filled the gap with anxiety and with mistrust and fear and bitterness and frustration. You haven't loved others like you love yourself. You haven't worked hard unto the Lord. You haven't prayed without ceasing. You, you haven't been a generous giver. And the list could go on and on. And like Abraham, you were meant to be a blessing to those around you. And yet in this very passage, Abram brought curses on the house of Pharaoh, the exact opposite of what God had called Abram to be. And yet friends, God has made a way To uphold his holy standards and fulfill all his promises to you in Christ. And that was through Jesus Christ himself who said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It was fulfilled in Jesus, the one who bore all of our failure on the tree. And was pierced for our transgressions. And was crushed for our iniquities. So that we could be free of every failure. And so we could receive every blessing. And every promise could be ours in Christ. Friend, turn again in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. Right here and right now. And the blessing promised to Abram. Will be the blessing received into your heart by faith and by faith alone. And once you've received it afresh, let me give you this word of exhortation. Devote your life to a life of integrity. It just so happens that in a few moments time, the men of the church are going to be getting together to discuss the chapter, The Discipline of Integrity. And if you ever needed a passage of the Bible to illustrate the need for integrity, it would be Genesis 12 verses 10 to 20. It is a perfect illustration. And I want to close this message tonight by listing the five benefits of integrity that R. Kent Hughes lists in that great chapter. He lists first character. He says, there can be no doubt that integrity is its own reward for it produces character and notwithstanding divine intervention, character determines the course of one's life here on earth. He lists second conscience and he says, if you have a clear conscience, you will be able to stand firmly in the storms that swirl around you. If your heart does not condemn you but affirms you, you will be a tower of of strength. Quote, whoever walks in integrity walks securely. Proverbs 10 verse 9. And he lists third, intimacy. Integrity of soul, he writes, assures a deep intimacy with God. God desires truth in the inward parts. And when it is there, he rejoices in his fellowship with that heart. A transparent, honest soul is a haven for the spirit of God. He speaks next of elevation, integrity elevates the lives of believers, integrity encourages more integrity, ethical conduct spawns further ethical conduct, honesty leads to honesty, character produces character, Solomon says the righteous man, the righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him and he closes with evangelism, I really don't know how he got his hands on this (laughs) but he quotes the East African standard in Nairobi that included a letter that said, quote, all debts to be repaid I, and he mentions this man's name, have dedicated services to the Lord Jesus Christ. I must put right all my wrongs. If I owe you any debt or damage personally or any of the comp- uh, from any of the companies I've been director of, and he lists them all, please contact me and my director. And he lists them. Please contact. No amount will be disputed. God and his son, Jesus Christ, be glorified. And commenting on that, R. Hughes wrote this, for a golden moment, all of the great city of Nairobi took note that Jesus Christ had made an ethical difference in a man's life. And no doubt souls were turned to Christ as a result. Integrity and evangelism are a potent combination. Friends, if God is a promise-keeping God, then we should be promise-keeping disciples. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. In a world that needs the gospel. So very much. If we are not trustworthy. Then they will not trust the message. That we proclaim. Amen.